Hi, this is Leslie Jennings Rowley. Recently, I sat down to talk with Brandon Del Pozo on Roads Taken about his journey that included close to 20 years on the New York City Police Force, a stint as the Chief of Police in Burlington, Vermont, and a blossoming career in public health and drug policy research. Join me as I talk to Brandon about this particular time in history of American policing, what he thinks of the defunding movement, and his ideas on how policing can become more effective if it works collaboratively with other social support systems around them on a special Policing in America bonus episode of Roads Taken. The reform really had been something that you were called upon to lean into. And I love that it's really, it's so much more holistic and well-being focused than kind of what I think typically people are thinking about as policing, particularly today. Um, so, yeah. no, that's great. I think there's so so. I always accuse police of having a real lack of imagination about their role. They're very bureaucratic. They're like an empowered military organization, and this is where abolitionists would wholeheartedly disagree. But it's in your DNA to love, admire, and respect a person who you don't even know, who you never met before, who will come when you call for help and take great risks to save you. Just from an evolutionary perspective, that makes sense. Like if we can encourage evolutionary behaviors that help us love, respect, and admire people who preserve our DNA line by coming to rescue us when we're in help, that, that makes sense from behavioral science. But I think it makes sense at an emotional level. And I would say to police, there's this latent love of the police that people are waiting to express. And every time they give us an opportunity, we somehow mess it up. And it comes from a lack of imagination. It comes from a lot of political mishaps. It comes from like narrow thinking, but but we persistently miss out on the opportunity to do things that would engender the love of communities. And I saw it at the, at, at the micro level. I've literally saved people's lives. I've literally stopped people from dying who would otherwise have died in very violent incidents. I've literally have interceded in rapes in progress, abductions, and people's like love and gratitude. Like I said, it's all worth it just to know that you help someone in that way. Why don't we have the imagination to get this right? On the other hand, and I do mean this, the abolitionists and the radical defunders have no imagination about what police work can do to really help the very people they care about the most, which is what I care about the most, which is the poor, the underprivileged, and communities of color, right? Right now, as we have this podcast, like violence is surging in America in countless cities in a way that is not due to chance. Baltimore, Chicago, Philadelphia, St. Louis, Minneapolis, New York, and you know who's suffering as we dither about the policy interventions and as we create this blind spot by defunding police but not having the right interventions? As we're doing this politically, the blind spot we've created is just hurting murderously and violently the poor, the underprivileged, and communities of color. And so that lack of imagination that police have about how to do their jobs better, I think is complemented these days by a lack of imagination that reformists have about positive values of policing. And I'm convinced of them, not just maybe it's selection bias or confirmation bias, but I spent, you know, two decades delivering this value. And I really believe. Yeah. That. Well, I am um, along with some family member of yours. I'm sure I am a reader of your dissertation. That makes, that makes three people. That makes <laughs> I know. my committee. And I know. Three other I'll people. send you mine. It can yeah. be my third. Um, so you say in it that police occupy both a positive and indispensable place in a liberal democracy, provided we set the proper normative benchmarks for their work. Mm-hmm. What are those proper normative benchmarks? Yeah, yeah, great. You know, norms for, for, for folks, you could just consider them really close, 
closely held ethical commitments or closely held values commitments, right? Um, what separates the state from nature, among other things, but one of the real things that separates the state from nature is is, is a promise by a community to protect and rescue people in evil and danger. And that's not only from larger issues like disease and uh, climate change now, for argument's sake, but also from like very proximate physical threats. Like if your car rolls over and it's on fire, like the government's promise is you're going to behave yourself and abide by certain rules and circumscribe your behavior. But in exchange for that, you get this commitment to rescue. And so what I remind folks is that like if you and I are walking down the street, Leslie, and we see like a guy beating the crap out of a little kid, just a very unambiguous case. We're allowed to use force to stop that person. Like you and I can can wrestle that man to the ground to stop him from hitting the kid. And if he shrugs us off, we can probably go get uh, a stick and hit him with it. And I'm not saying that lightly. The police don't have a monopoly on that use of force. The thing is, if you and I decide, my God, that guy is huge and he's armed. And like if we got involved, he'd clobber us. We have the prerogative to step back, but we also have the prerogative to get involved. What the government does is make, makes a promise to get involved. And what police do is be the role actors to execute that promise. And they execute it personally as individuals, like taking risks. And so that's the nerdy philosophical run-up to the idea that like that's an indispensable role in society. And then there's also another thing that police do, which is we're all competing for the use of public space, whether it's the street, the sidewalk, parks, whether it's you want to have a loud barbecue with drinking and music and I just want to read a book. Like we set these norms that the police have complete discretion to enforce that help us use public space in fair ways, whether it's through conveyance or for political reasons or expression or art or recreation. And if you look at a lot of the rules that we have trouble with police uh, enforcing, it's like getting called to kick a black person out of a pool because they may not be a member of the club or someone thinks that a black person is trespassing in a library at a university or they're not buying anything at a Starbucks and the manager wants them kicked out. Those are things that police have complete discretion about enforcing as well as like, do you let the protest march in the street or the sidewalk? Do you break up the rowdy barbecue or not? Our discretion in enforcing those laws a lot of times is unfairly done along race and class lines. But somebody has to broker the terms of social cooperation in our public spaces. Otherwise, it's just the people who get there first, the richest people and the most intimidating people who are going to live the lives they want. And the rest of us are just competing for the, for the leftover public space. Can't get away from that. What we need is the right normative commitments to make sure the police do it fairly. So one of them is that you need to prioritize brokering compromise over enforcement. And then your compromises and your, your enforcement need to be done for reasons that every citizen can say treats them equally. And when you're being told to get out of a Starbucks because you didn't buy anything, legally that, that meets all the, all the muster of trespass law when the manager says so. You're not treating a black person equally when you tell them that because I, I, get, I was in Seattle going into every Starbucks, and there's a lot of Starbucks <laughs> in Seattle. I was there going into every Starbucks in the city, reading the newspaper, using the bathroom, checking my phone, not buying a damn thing. No one would ever say that to me. So we are one of our commitments is, is, is to make discretionary police decisions in ways that treat everyone as equals. And then another one is to is to realize that we have a lot of bad surrogate endpoints in policing. Arrests are a bad surrogate endpoint to show that we're making progress. Seizures of contraband, tickets issued, even public safety that is delivered lowering the crime rate in a way that has huge collateral consequences that have other harms. Those are bad surrogate endpoints. So the other normative commitment I talk about is aligning policing's goals with the goals of public health. Are people leading longer lives? Are they leading healthier lives? Are they suffering less injuries? Are they leading lives where they're, they're more resilient and, and they're more able to pursue their, their life plans? 
how does policing contribute to those goals? All right. So let me ask you the flip, the flip side. So what are the yeah. norms that we've established that are either misguided or misplaced that aren't in service of liberal democracy right now? One of them, and it really applies to sheriffs, right? Because they're elected, but it also applies to electoral politics and municipalities where chiefs are appointed, is assuming that like police have a populist or majoritarian mandate to, to enforce certain things, right? Like sheriffs, I mean, a classic example how it plays out is like their views on gun control or their views on immigration. Immigration is a great example. Like the populace wants this. The populace in my jurisdiction that elected me want to clamp down on illegal immigration. So that's what I'm going to do. Or, you know, we want a certain type of quality of life to prevail in Midtown. So no matter whether you're homeless or mentally ill, we're going to crack down on you and issue arrests and summonses until you get the point and you move from like Times Square, four blocks west to Hell's Kitchen with a tourist arm paying attention. One of the problems with policing is that so much of the little things that affect our lives are enforced by the police with discretion because you know, they're minor violations. And so we just assume like the majority wants this to be a certain way. So we're going to enforce it that way. And what we're doing is like taking minority populations, literally like a like majority, majority, minority, but also racially too, and inflicting enforcement on them that we could look at the straight face and say, this is what 51% or more of the voters want, whether it's marijuana enforcement or drug enforcement or traffic enforcement. Policing can point to a democratic majority and say they have a mandate and not understand that they're enforcing laws in ways that don't treat citizens as equals, have outsized effects on minority populations. And it doesn't have to be that way. If you're treating citizens as equals, you can use your discretion in other ways, or you can use behavioral science or behavioral health or other people like social workers to achieve the same ends, right? Get out of that business, refer other actors. To yeah. It. And that's where your lack of imagination idea comes in, because you know, somebody who's looking at the political expediency of, okay, I have to do what the majority says in order for me to become, right. you know, keep my position. Maybe it's just, okay, let the social workers do it. That's an easy, an easy out. Or yeah. they could have more kind of political will to say, I'm going to do, I don't know, I want to, don't want to say the right thing, but the thing that is more equitable for, you know. It's equitable and evidence-based and effective, right? And I mean, it would just take longer just, it would be more discursive, but like there's all these things. If you use your imagination and think about you know, what captures our imagination are the high profile incidents of police violence, like the murder of George Floyd, right? Or the, the, the murder of the killing of, of Samir Rice, the murder of Walter Scott, the murder of Jordan Edwards. But then so much of our democratic fabric is formed by like millions of everyday small interactions with the police where they do or don't arrest somebody for shoplifting, or they do or don't take someone into custody for a mental health crisis, or they do or don't issue a speeding ticket or they do or don't kick someone out of Starbucks or issue a trespass, which, you know, those I think are overlooked and they're just as important to consider as far as democracy goes. And we can't just say, well, I have a, a hunch that the people in political power, whether it's the 51% majority or the big donors, right? Like want this. We actually have to police in a way that just like makes people feel like they're an equitable part of a uh, society. And Elizabeth Anderson, the philosopher would, would say, we need to affirm people's social bases of self-respect. If you're, if you're a philosopher out there, Elizabeth Anderson's idea of social bases of self-respect, I think figures large in how the police should treat people. Cause a lot of ways police do treat people like diminishes their sense of self-respect. And what's the path to that where it doesn't exist now? Um, 
So, yeah, you know, it's, it's like my stump speech, but I really think that, number one, I mean, not being afraid to reallocate police resources to interventions that are more effective. Because right now, like, police are empowered under the law to act. I, I call one of the powers of the police is the power to collect people and evidence and bring them to a judge, right? Because you break a statute, the police detect that a statute may have been broken, they have enough cost to think it has, and they use their power to collect that person and the evidence and bring it to the court. What the court does with that is a completely open question. Like right now, they just they 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 they, they plea bargain, they they convict, they incarcerate, or now they don't incarcerate. But they can do a bunch of other things too. And then beyond that, the police don't always have to bring you to the judge. They can bring you to the social worker. They can bring you to the addiction treatment center. I used to have my cops in Burlington conduct search warrants, and they would arrest the big dealer who's not using drugs and who's bringing them in from out of state and who's making profits off of people's addiction. That person would get charged, right, in the search warrant. But if there are sometimes people at the same scene who are selling drugs because they were addicted, they were they were street level people selling to stay supply, or they were just customers. There are instances where my cops would literally drive them to the needle exchange to get a buprenorphine prescription to get into treatment, or just to have the ability to stay out of withdrawal. One of those guys literally started crying and said, "I never thought I'd be swept up in a police search warrant. The cops wouldn't arrest me. They would they would take me to the." needle exchange to get medicine. Nothing stops the police from doing that. You just have to have a commitment. You have to have the, the mechanisms in place, the systems in place that provide for that. You have to have you have to have buprenorphine available at the syringe exchange where there's maybe a dozen places in America where that's possible, right? And then you have to have a system that values it. And then you have to have a commitment to doing it. So part of it's that. And then part of it is like realigning the commitments of policing, going back to like a broken record saying, I'm not going to stop at pointing to a crime rate. I'm not going to stop at pointing to my arrests. I'm going to show how they contribute with my collaborators to producing a healthier, safer, saner, uh, more resilient community. Like, so I, I would love, and I've said this on every podcast I've been able to say it on, a chief of police candidate to be sitting at a table in front of a mayor and a city council and the mayor and city council asking her not what are you going to do to bring community policing to my city? Because I can give you like this really pat, meaningless answer that will it will blow your socks off because I know how to give it. I've been trained in giving that answer. It is not very meaningful. I want them to ask that candidate for chief of police, what will you do to align your police work with the city's public health goals? Less violence, less morbidity, less mortality, more resilience, longer, healthier lives. Because you can't fudge that answer. You got to start talking about science, evidence, collaboration. You can't just say, I'm going to involve the community in my decision-making processes so that my strategies are community-driven. Like That's meaning. I just described community policing. I want to make sure that my officers understand their, their role in the community and their stake in it. Like, yeah, fine. That's community policing. Blah, blah, blah. That's where we are now. If that candidate has to talk about aligning policing with public health goals, all the other answers I just gave you don't answer that question. And you must talk about behavioral science. You must talk about evidence. You must talk about public health interventions. You must talk about collaboration. You can't answer that question and get the job without saying those things. And I think that empowering mayors and city councils and city managers to ask those questions and supervise and manage and hire and promote and fire chiefs of police based on those, those answers and how well they manifest, that's a real beginning of a road to reform. And, and you know what? That's where the uh, shame on the abolitionists and the radical defunders, because we're going to have police departments and they won't even engage policing with those questions. And so they're leaving all sorts of value on the table. And I will say this angrily. And what we're seeing right now is just skyrocketing shooting and murder rates in American cities. Yeah. 
Well, with your brain on this, I feel a little more hopeful than uh, just hearing about the skyrocketing crime rates. Um, but, you know, thank you for your service. Thank you for your thought and leadership um, in really making people be a little more imaginative and collaborative and systems-based and evidence-based, um, because that does sound like it's the better way forward. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Ruby. That was Brandon Del Pozo on a special bonus episode of Roads Taken. Each Monday, we post another full-length interview episode with a classmate of mine as we walk the road to our 25th college reunion. Join us on the journey by subscribing wherever you access your favorite podcasts, or check us out on roadstakenshow.com. Thanks so much for listening, and if you really like what you're hearing, please consider leaving a review on your podcast platform so that other people may find us more easily.